Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I do have a comment that I'd like to read about this George Washington series, and this is from the great state of Indiana. It says, Hello, JBL. John Adams and Samuel Adams both attended Harvard University. Thomas Jefferson attended the College of William and Mary. James Madison attended Princeton University. George Washington received a certificate for surveyor from the College of William and Mary. Maybe there was some educational bias against George Washington among his peers, but Washington's character and endurance led the way in the war. Washington lost more battles than he won, it is true, but he won the last battle and with it the war for independence. And he relinquished the presidency after two terms, setting an example until Franklin Roosevelt in the 1945. So again, thank you for that comment, and that's referring to George Washington's supposed lack of education, but we all know that he was a very well-educated man. Well, last time, the 60-plus panel completed a two-part series on Martha Washington. Now, that was really a fun series to do. There is an awful lot more we have to say about the Washingtons' marriage and their work in building a new nation. So we will come back to that, um, you know, and in some future programs, we'll talk more about Martha, especially when we get into uh, the Revolutionary War and when we get into his first two terms as president. But for today's program, what I want to do is I want to talk about George Washington as a man of noble principles. And he really, he really is an impressive man. He's really an impressive leader. And the more I study him, the more I wish that I could have known him personally. And uh, he's the kind of leader that America is really just kind of crying out for today. And of course, uh, um, not that uh, I'm not intending that to draw any uh, slight attention to President Trump. But uh, you can see that obviously their two personalities are, are radically different in in how they say things. But in terms of how they accomplish things, they're probably pretty close. But to help me do this today, I, I want to just start out with the book by Ron Chernow. And uh, remember the title of his book, Washington, A Life. That's the title. Now, I highly recommend this book as well the Ron Chernow book. Now, it's a little bit older, so you could probably find a pretty good copy at abebooks.com, and that's that's the used book, the book house, and I buy a lot of books through that house. But I, I, do, I do recommend it. But uh, the first point I want to make is that, that George Washington was actually trained to be noble in both his looks and his manners, and that's, that's really a rare thing today. And again, I think... Um, uh, not again, not to um, you know cast a bad light on President Trump, but he probably could uh, you know learn a few things from George Washington how he conducted himself. But this is how Ron Chernow describes him, 
And this is, uh, let's see, it's page 121 of his book. Now, the Chernow book is is a massive book. It's huge. And again, we, we did choose uh, some of these smaller biographies just to get people interested in biography. And hopefully, your interest in biography is greatly increasing and you are willing now to take on, uh, let's say, the bigger books. But uh, here's how he begins this chapter 11 called The Prodigy. He says, long before he achieved great fame or renown, something about Washington's bearing and presence bedazzled people. In common with other well-bred boys of his day, he probably wore a corset as a small child, which pulled his shoulders back and thrust his chest out, giving him added dignity. And so, so... there, there are certain ways that we can conduct ourselves, even physically, that can show us dignified or they can show us kind of be, you know, slovenly and uh, maybe uh, uh, not as dignified as we really should. And uh, even Mr. Stephen Flurry has talked about some of these things. He's even talked about the book, I Dare You, um, that was really written, uh, you know, in the uh, the 20th century and was used for... for uh, you know, boys growing up, and I guess also for girls as well. But uh, uh, we can be either dignified or we can be slovenly or we can be dirty looking. But uh, but George Washington really was taught from a little child how to have a certain dignity. And it really reminds me of how some of the kings of England trained their own children to be princes. Says, like a figure strutting on a stage, he never lounged or slouched and seemed as comfortable in a ballroom as on a battlefield. Properly apparelled on all occasions, he never allowed people to see him in a neglected state. So, so can you imagine George Washington walking into Walmart today? <laughs> I mean, he would look like he was going to, you know, a formal ball. And uh, uh, he would probably be really embarrassed how he saw, you know, some real Americans today. And it seems like we've really lost this quality in our society. But again, let me just repeat this. He never allowed people to see him in a neglected state, much less undressed and ordered clothes that gave him elegance with freedom of movement. In ordering a suit from London, he admonished his tailor, and this is a quote, Two, make it the best taste to sit easy and loose, as clothes that are tight always look awkward and are uneasy to the wearer. In the manner of European royalty, he never seemed to hurry. The impression fostered by his imposing physique, joined with his upright, virile carriage and natural aplomb, marked him out as a natural leader. And so, so George Washington not only uh, had great character, but he also presented himself well when he was in public. And uh, uh, people were really, as Chernow says, they were bedazzled by him. They were just impressed with the way he looked and the way he carried himself. Uh, Chernow continues, Much of the power of Washington's presence derived from his fluid gait, the antithesis of the stiff wooden image Gilbert Stewart grafted on the American uh, uh, imagination. So so he really wasn't as stiff as sometimes he's painted to be. Says the quintessential man of action, he moved like a national icon long before he became one. The sculptor William Rush recalled his smooth, unruffled movement. And here's a quote. 
I have been in battle immediately under his command. I have viewed him walking, standing, sitting. I have seen him at a game of ball for several hours, and in all these activities he exhibited the most manly and graceful attitudes I have ever seen. So so Washington would have been, well, a man's man, but he also would have been, um, you know, uh, very gentlemanly-like, and or even as we said in the former programs, he would have considered him gen- himself to be genteel, and uh, you know, so so he knew. Let's say I'll put it in the colloquial. He knew how to strut. Washington was quite simply a sight to behold, and here's another quote: "So tall, so straight." One servant remembered, and with such an air, ah, sire, he would like he was like no one else. At Williamsburg, and remember, this was the, the new capital of the Virginia uh, colony. At Williamsburg, he exuded a special splendor with his ceremonial sword riding on his hip while showing the light, confident tread of a, mili- of a military man. If much of this gracefulness came naturally to Washington, some of it likely came from strenuous youthful efforts to form himself for polite society as he acquired the easy manner and erect posture that distinguished a gentleman. And so so this took a lot of work, and it took a lot of training. And, of course, I remember as a boy that uh, you know, when we were growing up, I think these things were taught much more. Uh, I remember when we dressed up to, to go to our church services. You know, we were dressed with ties and white shirts and suits, and we were not allowed to put our hands in our pockets. That was an absolute... No, don't do that. And so, so there was, you know, training. I remember my mother, when she went out to uh, to do grocery shopping, she actually got dressed in a really, really one of her better dresses, and uh, she went out with her hair done, and uh, you know, she went out looking well, and uh, that that was the that was the time to do those things. And now, like I said, if you go to Walmart, you people, you can see people in their pajamas. You can see people with their, you know, their hair not uh, combed nicely. And uh, it really, um, it's really kind of sad, I think. Chernow goes on to say, George and Martha Washington were a sociable couple who entertained an unending cavalcade of guests at Mount Vernon. During the seven years before the American Revolution, they fed listen to this, they fed and frequently housed an estimated 2,000 guests. And so, obviously, Martha didn't do all the cooking by herself, but uh, she would have had a house full of servants to help her. But but they were really people that loved to entertain. They, they loved to give people a good time. Now, Chernow goes on to say, one visitor murmured his approval at how cordially Washington had treated him as if I had lived years in his house. So, uh, Chernow goes on to say, Washington was an excellent host of a certain sort. He was congenial without being deeply personal, friendly without being familiar, and perfected a cool sociability that distanced him from people even as it invited them closer. He never felt the urge to impress people. As John Marshall wrote, he had no pretensions to that vivacity which which fascinates and to that wit which dazzles. 
And so, so in some, some ways, we could look at George Washington as just as the perfect host. He, he could make people feel welcome without making them feel bad about themselves. And he never, he, he never uh, let's say, put himself as, well, he had to be the life of the party. You know, he wanted to create the party for everyone. But listen to this, and, and this is something that I personally want to do more of and, uh, and learn from this. It says, George Washington knew the value of silence. He largely kept opinions to himself and seldom committed a faux pas. Now, that's, that's hard for people with Irish background. It seems like I'm always saying something that gets me in trouble. But anyway, anyway Washington and uh, George and Martha were just great hosts. And, uh, um, you know, he, he, uh, he really did a lot for the country in the sense of being able to get out and mix in crowds. And, uh, you know, he, he was a very reserved man, but he wasn't, uh, uh, let's say, reserved to the point of isolating himself from, from a lot of people. Um, that, that is really part of his English background. Remember, this is supposedly an English uh, biography series or a uh, biography of English people. Now, here's another thing about him. Let's say in terms of his noble qualities, he may have been genteel or he may have been gentlemanly-like, but he was really a strong person. And Chernow brings this out. It says, in a world not far removed from the frontier, Washington's physical strength and dexterity won many admirers. He knew he was a physical prodigy and enjoyed displaying this with an exhibitionist flair. When he painted Washington in 1772, Charles Wilson Peale observed an instance of Washington's Herculean strength that he never forgot. Now, this is a this is a comment by George Wilson Peale after he had painted uh, uh, Washington's picture. And uh, this is really just a great story. It says, One afternoon, several young gentlemen, visitors at Mount Vernon, and myself were pitching the bar when suddenly the colonel, or Washington, appeared among us. He requested to be shown the pegs that marked the bounds of our efforts. Then, smiling and without putting off his coat, held out his hand for the missile. No sooner did the heavy iron bar feel the grasp of his mighty hand than it lost the power of gravitation, striking the ground far beyond our utmost limits. We were indeed amazed as we stood around, all stripped to the buff, having thought ourselves very clever fellows, while the colonel, on retiring, pleasantly observed, and this is a comment from Washington himself, when you beat my pitch, young gentleman, I'll try again. <laughs> so, so he was really, really, uh, you know, a, a really strong guy. And he didn't even have to take his jacket off. You know, the other guys were stripped down, as they said, to the buff. So I imagine they had their shirts off. And, uh, um, uh, you know, Washington didn't even take his coat off. Now, there is this um, the legend that... Washington threw a silver dollar across the Potomac, and that is a legend. And uh, Chernow brings this up, though, because there was another feat that he did, that, that, which is really incredible. It says, while Washington never threw a silver dollar across the Potomac, as legend asserts, he did hurl a rock to the top of the natural bridge in the Blue Ridge Mountains, a height of 215 feet, 
Although boasting was always foreign to Washington's nature, after the Revolution, he confided to David Humphreys that he never met any man who could throw a stone to so great a distance as himself. And so, so uh, uh, you know, George Washington was not a weakling. He may have been, uh, you know, a gentleman's gentleman, but, but he definitely was not a, a, a weakling. Now, there's some other things about him, I think, in terms of like these noble qualities is, um, and we'll be talking uh, about his life as a uh, a farmer as well. But uh, uh, George Washington loved horses. And of course, when you come from Virginia, you wouldn't be surprised about that. I mean, and, and knowing that he, he still believed himself to be very English, uh, he really loved, uh, you know, raising thoroughbred horses, and uh, again, again, that was uh, really especially prized in Virginia. I mean, he was a, a great writer, um, uh, and uh, he he really, as a really, I say as a maybe I call him more of a planter. Um, uh, sometimes you could look at the word farmer as someone that's stupid. But obviously, farmers are not stupid, and obviously, as a planter, he was not stupid. And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But but one thing about um, Washington, he not only loved horses, he loved hunting. And uh, Chernow tells us about this. And the, the, point, the reason why I'm bringing this point out is not only was George Washington, let's say, into proper manners and maybe uh, even uh, proper etiquette, he knew how to conduct himself in public. He still loved to do the manly things. And here's what Chernow says. He says, an, an avid hunter, Washington keenly stalked foxes, deer, ducks, quail, pheasant, and even occasional bears on his estate. He hunted in a handsome outfit, a blue riding frock and scarlet waistcoats threaded with gold lace and topped by a black velvet cap. He wore high boots and carried a smart-looking riding crop, decorated in a herringbone pattern. So much did Washington adore the sport that he he papered his mansion with hunting prints. On hunting days, his ritual was to rise before dark outside. Invariably, he was accompanied by Billy Lee, who got Washington to stop hunting black foxes and stick to gray ones after one black fox eluded them on an exhausting chase. Lee averred that there was something diabolical about the cunning black fox fox and so so i have uh done my day with hunting and i remember getting up before dawn you know getting breakfast and going out into the woods sitting by a tree waiting for the deer and freezing to death so so i know what that's like but but uh uh anyway he loved hunting and uh actually chernow calls him a lusty hunter and uh he he uh he recorded a lot in his diary about his hunting trips and uh, chasing foxes, and so so that's really interesting. Now, one other area that I just I want to bring out just just two more areas about uh, his background and and maybe what he was taught is George Washington had uncommon agility when it came to dancing. And remember, I think we've, my wife and I talked about this in the last couple of programs, that dancing was a big deal for Virginians. And we have to remember that Washington was a Virginian. 
Now, here's what Chernow says. He said, because colonial life revolved around the fancy balls and assemblies, gentlemen were expected to master reels, jigs, and minuets. An exceptionally graceful dancer, Washington flourished in such society, not only because he presented an image of strength and poise on the dance floor. One lady recalled that he was a ceremonious and grave partner, but also it allowed some harmless interactions with the ladies. It was the one venue where Martha permitted him to indulge his penchant for gallantry with younger women. And so, so in other words, he was such a good dancer. He was a hit with the women, and everyone wanted to dance with him. And, of course, uh, you know, his wife, Martha, trusted him so much that she permitted him to dance with, with younger women. So, so I think that was really fascinating. Now, here's another thing that I learned that I did not expect. Uh, Turnall goes on to say, among the other chief diversions of Washington's social life was the theater. During stays in Williamsburg, he attended everything from concerts to waxworks to puppet shows, though nothing matched his sheer delight in a good play. Many scholars have noted the abundant theatrical imagery in his writings as when he advised a young relative that he was about to enter upon the grand theater of life. So the recurrence of such metaphors says something not only about Washington's love of theater, but about his awareness of the dramatic nature of his life and the eventual times through which he passed. And so, so I, I think those are, those are probably some fascinating things about um, Washington that we really didn't know before. And uh, uh, he's a playgoer. So that's, that's he's a man after my own heart because I of course I teach Shakespeare and I consider myself a playgoer and uh, I love to go to plays and of course I love to go to good concerts and uh, you know other things of the theater. Now I, let's let's get back to Johnson and and here's my point two for today's program. Um, George Washington was a slave owner, but he really detested chattel slavery. Now, uh, you, you just have to really pay attention to, to this next section. And, of course, Paul Johnson talks about this uh, in this book. So, so let's go to page 37 of the George Washington book. Now, again, there, there is uh, you know, a lot of foment in this country right now about um, you know, what has been done to... to uh, you know, the black population in this country. And, you know, the thing is, we all have to accept that that slavery was wrong. And it is a great sin in America. But there's a few points that that Johnson points out that I think we need to take notice of. And I have to be careful of my time here so that we we can actually get through this. Um, Here's page 37. I'm just going to read some of this. It says, 18th century Virginia, in which Washington lived, and farmed was a world in which degrees of servitude were habitual and taken for granted. Now, now, being a servant or being a slave, you know, in Virginia or in the early colonies was not just uh, uh, by black people or by, you know, slaves bought in Africa or, or, you know, captured in Africa and brought to this country. And so I want you to listen to this. It said, the highest level of servitude was indentured labor, from the very beginnings, Virginia plantations had been worked by redemptioners or freewheelers. And, and what uh, Johnson means here is they, those were white immigrants 
who, in return for a passage out to America from England, bound themselves for service for a fixed term, usually two to seven years. And so if they're, if they're, um, you know, trip to America was paid for, they, they were, became indentured servants, but they were white. Um, it says, this group constituted perhaps 75% of total immigration until 1775. A stage below were the involuntary workers, also mainly white, who were working off debt or were convicts in transports, sentenced by British courts to terms of transportation, a minimum of seven years, often 14 or more, and who were out, hired out to farmers by the state. So the, the, it's, it's really interesting that that third section, or the second section of slaves, excuse me, were actually white as well. Now, there is a third, and there, were another, there was another group of slaves, and uh, they were called the chattel slaves, and they were black or mulatto, mostly sold to Portuguese slave traders by African kings or chiefs. Now, that's a, that's a point that a lot of people forget. Now, it, doesn't, uh, it still doesn't justify you know, uh, the use of slaves. But anyway, th- the point is, is a lot of people forget that a lot of the black slaves we do have in America, or we did have in America, came as a result of other Africans selling Africans. And uh, you know, that's, that is really something we need to, to talk about. Now, he goes on to say, Johnson's, this is page 38, he says, they were introduced to the British colonies by Dutch traders in 1617 and were soon numerous in Virginia, though it was not until South Carolina colonized from West Indies that the American chattel slavery became an important institution. Now, um, uh, I'm, I'm running out of time here, but I just want you to know, and we're going to have to continue this next time, but, but George Washington hated the American chattel slavery, and uh, we'll go ahead and talk about this the next time. We'll we'll pick up right here. So, uh, again, that's all we have time for today's program. So next time, I'll continue my discussion of George Washington's noble qualities. And remember, our third and final book in this series is Hero, the Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. Again, he was another great Englishman. You can find both these books uh, on Amazon. You can also find used copies of the books at abebooks.com. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcrg.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And remember, you can leave me a comment there. So until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com